Uh, it's good to be back with you all again. Uh, if you do not have a handout, those are strongly encouraged. They are over here by the offering basket, uh, which is also strongly encouraged for that matter. I can say that I'm not the preacher here, so it doesn't, you know, th doesn't matter. I, I can push the, I can call for the basket three, four times, and I don't have to feel bad about that. Um, you know, this week it's a cheat sheet for the major points in the scriptures. Uh, but on the back, I hope there's also some questions that you can take home this week and using your private study, um, using your small group time as you're meeting with people, as you're, uh, you're just sitting and communing with the Lord. Hopefully there's some questions there that can uh, provoke your mind, get you, uh, get you back into kind of carrying the message out through the week. So let me kick off with a word of, a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig back into Scripture again. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for the gift of the leadership of this church. Uh, I am grateful and have been enormously blessed to be here. Uh, Father, this morning I pray that you would bless each of the people online and each of the people here present, uh, that as your word is spoken, Lord, they would hear uh, clearly a message from you, uh, that the word of God would ring true in their hearts, uh, and that the application, Lord, would not... Uh, would not come through as a source of, you know, I must do this, or, or Brad says do this, um, but a specific application, Lord, where your spirit would move their heart uh, in faith towards you, that a response would be first and foremost to you. So, Father, I pray you be glorified. I pray for clear speech. I pray for clear understanding. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, some people have probably heard, I don't know, maybe some people haven't, um, there is this uh, definition of insanity called Iron Man. It's a sporting event. It's now a whole series. It started out as just one. It's a whole series, and they run these things all over the world. It's 2.4 miles of open water swimming in a lake or in an ocean, a 112-mile bike ride, followed by a 26.2-mile marathon. Now, multi-sport, triathlon specifically, started as a fun way for runners to break up training. And in 1982, it was barely unheard of. Almost no one had known anything about it. Until ABC's Wide World of Sports broadcast the World Championship in Kona, Hawaii. Now, little did they know when they signed up for this, that this would be the launching point for massive growth in the sport. The women's race leader was a woman named Julie Moss. And having gone through all of that with a mere 200 meters to go, her body completely shut down from the heat and the dehydration of the Hawaii sun. On national television, she crawled the remaining 200 yards across the finish line in what has become one of the more iconic finishes in sports history. What would possibly possess someone to swim 2.4 miles, bike 112 up a volcano, run 26.2, and want to finish so badly that they were willing to crawl? What is unusual is while multi-sport did not exist in the Bible, there is an example of this kind of tenacity that Paul has for us here this morning. Some 2,000 years earlier, Paul wrote to the Philippians 
about the race of a lifetime. And I am thrilled to be able to work this passage with you this morning. We are going to continue in the book of Philippians as we have the past two weeks. This is a letter in the New Testament about three quarters of the way through your Bible. And today we're going to be in chapter three, which is three quarters of the way through the letter. We're going to pick up chapter three, verses 12 to 21, if you're following along. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. This is God's word. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. God's word from Philippians. Now, to help you hang with the story this morning, I have shamefully alliterated, because that's what preachers do. We have three points, and they're all going to alliterate around this theme. We must take ownership for the pursuit of perfection that Christ has already purchased. We must take ownership for the pursuit of perfection that Christ has already purchased. So now let's go and find that in the text. Point number one, own your position in Christ. Now, as we've been working through this letter, Paul has now on several occasions given commands to the Philippians or instructions there to follow on their Christian walk. The passage before us has several commands, and again, like others, Paul reinforces for the saints and for us that our doing of these things is first rooted in what Christ has already done. Recall back to chapter 1, verse 10 where Paul writes, approve what is excellent, he tells them. But he precedes this with verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God began the work, promises to complete the work, and therefore the Philippians can approve what is excellent. Here's another example, chapter 1, verse 27. Do let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because in verse 28, this is clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, for it has been granted to you. Last week, we did one of the biggest ones, chapter 2, verses 12. Do work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How? We can't do that on our own. 
Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And because of this, because of God's working, we can do verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. There is surely work for us to do. There are areas in our life that we need to grow, and Paul is going to get to those in just a moment. But he will never want us to enter into those without a fresh reflection on what Christ has already done. So now back to our passage. Paul begins with, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. What is Paul waiting to attain then? What is this he's speaking of? It could be that he's not attained the resurrection from the dead, which he talks about in the preceding verse 11. Indeed, at death, Christians will shake off their earthly sinful bodies and become perfect like Christ. But stating this would seem rather evident since he's not writing after his own death. Now, it is perhaps better to see this continuation of thought is that Paul does not want them to think that he's arrived, that he's made it. Despite his lofty Christian resume, he is not now perfect. The implication is, of course, that if we think we have a right to put our thumbs under our suspenders for any reason relating to matters of faith, then all we need to do is put our resume next to Paul's, and if he hasn't made it, then surely we haven't. Paul was the man, but he hasn't yet received everything that we saw him write about in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Paul's going to enter into a sports metaphor here in a minute. He's saying here that he hasn't crossed the finish line, but it hasn't stopped him from trying. But I press on to make it my own. Despite him early in this chapter saying that all of his works of faith were junk, it hasn't stopped him from pursuing Christ. If there were anyone ever who was deeply aware of how present tense right now salvation was for him, it is Paul. His conversion experience is fresh in his mind. He is aware, increasingly aware of his sin, but even more so increasingly aware of Christ's application of forgiveness for that sin. Brother or sister in Christ, be reminded today here by Paul that salvation was not a one-time event that happened to you at some point in your past. Your status before God changed at that moment, but like Paul, you did not become immediately perfect. And if you aren't quite sure about this, I'd ask you to check with your spouse or a good friend. They will be happy to tell you that you're not yet perfect. Paul, you and I, we must continue to press on to make it our own. And here Paul gets a bit rhymy. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Same word both times. Paul's obedience, Paul's forward progress is deeply personal to him. And why? Because Christ first claimed him. More literally, it says, because I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul was not reaching out. Paul was not looking for God. In fact, he was trying to eradicate the name of Jesus. So Jesus reached down from heaven, grabbed Paul by the scruff of the neck, and threw him into the hell that he justly deserved. No, Jesus claimed him, made him his own, gave him a new identity, and set him on a new trajectory for life. Paul's goals were different. His mission was different. His life was different. And as we will see, his destination was different. Despite everything he had accomplished for Christ, he wasn't yet perfect, but trusting in the work of God that had already started in him. 
See here the accomplished work of Christ, accomplished before our obedience, and now as the reason for our obedience. We must first own our position in Christ. Next, point number two, own your progress in Christ. And we'll spend much more time here. Paul has said that he presses on, and now he's going to show us what that looks like. He reiterates, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Brothers, sisters, dear ones, fellow saints, sufferers, and sinners. How affectionate Paul is for them. He reiterates, I have not arrived. I do not, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He's given this careful consideration and reinforces that while he is pressing on, he's not yet arrived, he's not there. But here's what he says, but one thing I do. So if Paul, the mega saint, has just one thing for us, I would think it would be wise for us to pay attention, no? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This one thing. Walter Hansen, the commentator, writes, The highest priority in Paul's life captivates his full attention and demands total concentration. The tyranny of urgent needs, the clamor of popular voices, the top news of the day all take a pale second to the one overarching goal of Paul's life. All his thoughts, emotions, and decisions are focused on this fixed point. One thing. And he's going to explain this to us with a sports metaphor. It's easy to see in our modern culture the singular fixation that professional athletes have on reaching the top of their games, often giving up careers, families, and relationships to be the very best. And Paul amplifies that here. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, I don't know how you feel about Bill Belichick or the New England Patriots, but the guy has been successful as a coach at historical, perhaps best of all times levels. And what you will find if you listen to any of his post-game interviews is that he basically says the same thing every time. Doesn't matter if they won or lost. The only thing he will talk about is getting ready for next week. The game that just happened is history. Can't change it. All his focus and attention is now on the game ahead. In a context, this is perhaps hard to soak up. Paul has accomplished almost everything anyone could possibly imagine for a first century missionary of Christ. He has some 20 or 30 years under his belt of following Jesus, repeated sufferings, beatings, imprisonments for his name, planted countless churches, written most of our New Testament. Surely that's enough. Paul considers it carefully and puts it behind him. His sin before conversion is put away on the cross. They've been cast into the depth of the sea, the prophet Micah tells us. And anything he has accomplished since then has been a grace and a mercy of God. So he doesn't forget it. It's not amnesia. No, he chooses to pay no attention to it. That was yesterday, and those are small potatoes compared to what Christ has in store for him in future glory. What's more, those things from his past aren't going to make him more like Christ in the future. Lessons learned, perhaps, but no one successfully drives staring in a rearview mirror. C.S. Lewis said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. 
And keeping with the athletic metaphor, anyone who has run knows that running backwards and looking backwards will always slow you down. Package forgetting what lies behind now with this idea of straining forward to what lies ahead. This is straining, maximum exertion, stretching out or reaching. This is 100-yard dash diving at the finish line. He's not looking back. He's not looking around. He is objectively locked in on Christ. And now he shares his one thing. All right, Paul, we're ready. Let's have it. What is the one thing? I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. I press on, he says. This is like hunting an animal. In fact, this is the same word he uses back in verse 6 to talk about how he persecuted the church. So the former zeal for what he did against Christ, he now pursues progress towards Christ. Paul acknowledged his imperfection, but instead of giving up, it emboldened him to press on with that same passion. He wanted the name of Jesus Christ eradicated and gave his life and everything to it. God changed him and saved him. And now he wants Jesus perfected in him. He wants to see the call at the end of the race that Jesus began in him at the beginning of the race. Remember 1.6, he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. That's why Paul runs. That's the prize. He longs to see God bring him to that state of perfection that he has not yet achieved. He wants to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Now, we often think of heaven as up there, and that's the sense of this. That's the sense of this upward call. His focus is on things of heaven and not the things of earth. And we'll see that confirmed later in the passage. Paul has told us of his experience and his efforts and his focus. And now he turns to us in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Mature or perfect, this is the same word from verse 12 where he told us he wasn't, but now he draws us back into this idea. While he may have had a track record that allowed him to put himself above the Philippians, Paul is incredibly humble and chooses to acknowledge that there are many who are on this journey, and he is but one of those who is perhaps further along than others. Further along in their sanctification, to be sure, but he says here, further along in their thinking, as he's just described it, further along in this single-minded focus on Christ. And for those who don't think this way, guess what? God has them covered too. Paul's confidence here also is that they will not figure it out on their own. No. His confidence is not that they won't figure it out by his teaching. His confidence is where? He says, God will reveal that to you also. Only, no matter which group you're in, let us hold true, hold fast to what we have attained through Christ. So let's get very practical with this. Paul talks about two groups of people. And the exhortation from this passage is the same, but the risks are different. Because Christ has made us his own, we can, should, must strive to make him our own. And through the empowering of the Spirit, each of us can, should, must put past successes behind us and focus on further growth and godliness until such time as he takes us home and makes us perfect. That's how we make progress in light of our position. Now, for those of you who are further along in the journey, who may have been Christians for a long time, here are the temptations. There are two. 
The first is to rest on our laurels. But Brad, we've given so much. We've helped so many people. God's used me in such and such ways and so forth. This shows up in a staleness, a stalling out in growth. You see, Paul excludes that here. That's what lies behind. It's forgotten. If Paul's resume doesn't get marked as perfect, then surely yours does not either. The second is an equal error of pride, but it's to look down on those who are not as spiritual or who haven't progressed or, or even perhaps regressed in their spiritual walk. The remedy for both cases is a prescriptive application of the gospel. Paul here shows the race towards the prize that only comes at death. If you're still here, you're still in the race. You are not done. You have to remind, we have to remind ourselves of the grace of God in saving us over and over again because we still sin over and over again. If you cook, you have probably at some point cut yourself. And what do you do then? You wash it and you probably medicate it. If you cut yourself a second time, do you say, well, I medicated it last time and I washed it last time, so I'm good. No, that's ridiculous. You wash it and you medicate it every single time. Every single time through his word or through fellowship, you become aware of sin in your life. You apply the gospel to it. You recognize the sin is first against God, repent towards God, and then pursue change through the power that God provides. The sin of pride is no different. The remedy is the same. Now, some may have fallen into the first category, but everyone should find themselves in the second one. Because even if you've been a Christian for a long time, Paul has shown us here that we still have an awful lot of room for growth. And perhaps the greatest mark of maturity is realizing that you have not yet reached maturity. Praise God, he will reveal this to us also so that we can grow. How will he do this? Sometimes it's through scripture, sometimes through a loved one, other believers, perhaps reading good Christian or theological books. Paul's emphasis here is on this thinking, deeply thinking, studying, meditating, memorizing God's word is both a mark of maturity as well as a method of progressing in maturity. The gospel is simple enough that it can be understood by a child, but deep enough that you and I can study it for a lifetime and never reach the bottom. Remember back to chapter 2, Paul told us about the glory of Christ. And how does he start in verse 5? He says, have this mind among yourselves. There it is. Again, the mindset, the thinking. But in this case, he's showing us the mind of Christ. Now here in our passage today, he's showing us that we can have that same mindset. But the risk for people in this situation is despair. I'm not progressing. I can't seem to get past this particular sin. I yelled at my spouse. I kicked the cat. Whatever. The antidote for you is the same. Paul is about one thing, and this doctor hands out only one script. He who began the good work in you, God who called you out of sin and into relationship with him, he who began the good work in you will, here again, the absolute totality of that, will bring it to completion. God is not your adversary anymore. I think we sang that earlier. Yes, his hatred of sin remains, but he sees you as he sees his son. and is now on your side against the sin and has provided the Holy Spirit 
and brothers and sisters around you to fight it. Even from today's passage, Christ made us his own. That's both the start and the end of the race. We are now in the middle, striving to complete it. Now, I'm learning a bit about triathlon coaching right now, and one of the most important things I've learned so far is the difference between performance goals and process goals. A performance goal is something that is partially or largely out of your hands. It could be winning a particular race or setting a record of some kind. If you show up that day and it's pouring down rain with a 20 mile an hour wind, you're not gonna make your goal. It's not gonna happen. A more useful way of setting goals is process goals. These that are things are almost entirely within your control. How often do I work out? What do I choose to eat? How much rest do I get? We pick those things. And if we make progress in those sorts of goals, then often realistic performance goals follow. Well, our greatest performance goals have been achieved in Christ. He's already run the race perfectly and credited the win to us. But until we can claim the ultimate prize, you and I are a work in progress. We must daily choose simple things. Read our Bibles, repent of sin, apply the gospel over and over again in sometimes very small but very significant ways. You see, the more time we are believers, the more aware we should become of our sin and the more offended we should be by it. Our desires change not because we will them to, but because we see the beauty of Christ as more attractive than our sin. Dunham writes, Every day then, we begin where we are, claiming boldly and confidently that Christ has made us new creatures, but confessing humbly that we have not become in fullness what Christ wants us to be. Do not despair, dear one. You and I and Paul are all on the same journey. Be reminded again of your position in Christ. Only then, can we take responsibility for owning our progress in Christ? Now, one point more, point number three. Own your perfection in Christ. Own your perfection in Christ. Paul, our great counselor, begins again. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. While this may seem a bit presumptuous, we must remember that they had no Old Testament canon. They could not go home. I could not tell them to go read their Bibles. Previously, he had commended to them Timothy and Epaphroditus, to them as visible examples, for Paul remained separated from them by chains. He has already said that he's not perfect, but he's on his way. He is locked in on the goal and is now encouraging the Philippians to follow his lead. He'd tell the Corinthians the same way, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. As I gave you a new example, a new model, a new way of living, this single-minded focus on Christ, so now you adopt this same lifestyle, following my lead. Someone once observed that some aspects of Christian discipleship are more easily caught than taught. In sports, especially in cycling, there is this idea of something called drafting, where one person follows very closely behind another and gets the benefit of the air having been pushed out of the way. In a sense, the front person has done the hard part, and the one behind in the draft is quite literally pulled behind. And what is remarkable about this phenomenon is that when a small group do this and pull away together, they're faster. 
together as a result of this. So if you are the person who is looking up to a spiritual mentor, then get into their draft as they chase Christ. And this will necessarily pull you along and speed your progress. And for those of you further along, know that having those in draft are not a liability holding you back, but instead a further aid to help push you along in your faith as well. Who is that person or persons for you? Paul says, imitate me and others like me as we imitate Christ. As a part of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, going and making disciples implies there will be those who go and share the good news and also those who are new to Christ who need spiritual guidance to grow up in the Christian faith. At my home church, our mission is to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ, we strive alongside Paul to see people first awaken to Jesus, but then for them and each of us to make continued steady progress along the way. Who are those persons whose example you are following? And then who are you pulling along in your draft behind you? And now Paul sets up a contrast for us. For many, is going to be the negative example, what not to follow. And but our is going to be the positive example, what should we follow. And as you will not be surprised, Paul will leave absolutely no middle ground between them on which to stand. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are bad examples. There are pretend Christians. There are people you should not follow. And he says, for many, implying that there are none too few of them. Apparently, some had considered themselves as already reaching perfection. Some who had made professions of faith, but their example, their lifestyle, their life choices, reflect not a single-minded pursuit of Christ, but a single-minded pursuit of self-indulgence. Rather, taking up their cross, as Jesus says in Matthew 16, they take up their sinful desires. And Paul's response is both weeping and warning. Paul is literally in tears over these people. He mourns for them. He is not approaching angry with a fist held high, but in deep sadness over their choice. Why? We hear in verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Look at all the contrasts. Paul is striving for the upward call of God, and these people's end is destruction, assignment to hell. He points back to chapter 1, verse 28, where he's contrasting those pursuing a life worthy of the gospel of Christ with those now who oppose it to their own destruction. That is surely cause for deep sadness. We should mourn powerless fake Christianity. Paul's worship is towards Christ, and these people worship their stomach. In Romans, he says it this way, For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They aren't running for Team Jesus. They're running for Team Me. Paul's glory is in the cross of Christ, and their glory is their shame. Instead of giving glory to God, they've heaped praises on themselves. Everyone runs this race. There is no disqualification and no one gets to sit out. 
We all run, but some are running for their glory and some are running for God's glory. Paul's mind is set on the prize, the upward call of God, and their minds are set on earthly things. Now, of course, it's not wrong for us to consider earthly things. You've heard the expression that some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And I think there's truth in that. But Paul goes back again to the same idea of thinking and mindset. There is one mindset, one way of thinking that is fixed on Christ and deals with the earthly in light of that. And there is another mindset that is fixed on earthly things, makes light of Christ, and its end is destruction. When we see this, we too should both be weeping and warning. Don Carson notes, For our part, we must not become people who denounce, but who do not weep. Neither may we become people who weep, but who never denounce. Too much is at stake both ways. We see those raising their fist against perceived wrong, but with no heart for the people on the other side of the aisle. This seems overwhelmingly true in our political conversations these days. But also those who see the wrong are grieved by it and do nothing. They stand idle with tears and watch them go to their destruction. You see, Paul holds both here. We can and must be brokenhearted for those running away from Christ. We can and must speak out against actions and activities that run contrary to the revealed will of God. You can see them both here and you can feel this very real tension. And again, this is why Paul has been so emphatic that our mindset must be aligned to Christ and to what he has already done, lest we err in either direction. Some are enemies of Christ, false believers who serve themselves, race for themselves, and the prize is destruction. Now, what is the contrast? Verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There is a mind set on earthly things leading to destruction and a mind set on heavenly things. And these are, in Paul's eyes, completely different. They have no connection whatsoever. They are opposites with an ocean between them. Recall that citizenship was a really big deal for these Philippians. Caesar had granted them the same rights as if they were in Rome. This was a big deal for them. Paul reminds them and us that it is a far bigger deal to be counted as a citizen of heaven. We celebrate Independence Day in our country, and we should indeed be grateful to God for all the blessings that citizenship here provides. The governing authority over their lives, as Paul reminds them, however, is not Rome, and it's not America, it's heaven. We are, yes, citizens here, but so much more citizens of heaven. They are, and we are, a small outpost of heavenly people here. And this is why Paul encourages us to run so single-mindedly. It's not that the world around us has nothing for us. God has made everything and much to be enjoyed. But you see, the difference between living for those things and living in light of those things is of the far, far better things that we have to come. We get tiny windows into heaven here of what it will be like, but peering through those is not supposed to make us like here more. It's supposed to make us increasingly homesick for what is to come. 
Young people, let me apologize to you for all the well-meaning folks at graduation who tell you that the best years of your life are what you're experiencing now. They mean well, but they're totally wrong. If you are a believer in Christ, then you have amazing days ahead of you. Some may be here on earth, but many, many more will be with Jesus in heaven. Old people, that applies to us too. We are awaiting a savior. We are waiting and longing for that return. Caesar at that time proclaimed himself to be the savior of the Roman Empire, but he's dead and saved no one. Jesus is alive and has the power to save everyone. And when he does come, verse 21 reminds us that the bodies that some worship now will be remade. And I can tell you some of us are really thankful for that. These lowly bodies are going to get an extreme makeover, God edition. Contrast that to those who worship their body now to their destruction later. This should be encouraging to us. There are many here that I am sure are experiencing physical suffering. These bodies are rentals. Life in this earthly body, think back to the Christ hymn in chapter 2. Christ's earthly body experienced the same weakness and the same suffering. There is no denying the present suffering, but instead Paul points to the power that is to come, that enables him to subject all things to himself. What things, you ask, Brad? It says all things. Pain, suffering, loss, grief, all things. All of those things are and will be subject to Jesus at the resurrection. The same power, back in chapter 2, verse 13, that was willing and working is the same power that will bring it to completion. And at this point, Paul is probably almost shouting with excitement as he pulls from several Old Testament passages. What God began with the first Adam will be concluded with the last Adam. Psalm 8, 6 declares, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Paul is looking back to look forward beyond the finish line. That's why we look to heaven. That's why we're to be fixed on Christ. You've probably sung this song before, turn your eyes on Jesus. I think Paul is paraphrasing that here. Lock your eyes on Jesus Christ. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Why? In light of his glory and grace. Let me conclude with a story. Fast forward from Julie Moss in 1982 to 1989. Dave Scott had won that race a record six times. Mark Allen had won every race except for that one, losing to Scott twice. For 2.4 miles in the water, 112 miles on the bike, and 22 miles of running, just four to go, these two were never more than a few feet apart. They've spent seven hours and 45 minutes in athletic competitions side by side. They've been averaging a six minute mile pace, which is something just by itself in a marathon is difficult. These two men drive themselves to the very brink of collapse. They shatter the records and they finish less than a minute apart. Mark Allen won what has been known as the Iron War. These two men are an example of what Paul is commending to us here today. They both came from established pedigrees of racing, but that didn't matter. They both put what, was, what they had behind them and spurred each other on far beyond what either thought they were capable of. 
striving, as Paul says, for the prize. Theirs was an earthly prize. Ours is a heavenly prize. We are not now perfect, but we will be at the resurrection. We must take ownership for the pursuit of the perfection that Christ has already purchased. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, you write in Psalm 138 that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And so, Father, today all of these dear saints are the work of your hands. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister these verses to their soul. That chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, 13, and the fixed mindset on Christ that we see today in chapter 3 would embolden them to stretch beyond themselves, to fix their eyes on you, Lord. Strive for what some have called the audience of one. Look not to either side. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. Look wholly in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.